Hello and welcome to Health Affairs This Week, where we talk about the latest health policy news that caught our attention. I'm Jessica Bylander. And I'm Rob Lott. So today we're talking about a topic that is near to my heart as I'm currently five months pregnant, and that is maternal health. And back in February, we talked about the Momnibus Bill, which is seeking to mitigate racial and ethnic disparities in maternal health outcomes. And today we're talking about postpartum insurance coverage and also some other developments in the maternal health space. I think it goes without saying that childbirth is really expensive. Um, We published some research last year that showed that even with employer-based insurance, um, people were paying out of pocket for maternity care at a rate of more than $4,500 in 2015. So that's really astounding. Um, And you can imagine that if patients are uninsured or underinsured, the bills they receive after childbirth are staggering. So before we go any further, maybe we should talk about the biggest player in this space, which is Medicaid. Rob, can you give us some context about Medicaid's role when it comes to maternal and postpartum care? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, before we go any further, congratulations, Jessica. Um, (laughs) I know we're all really excited to uh, have another little uh, next generation health affairs editor (laughs) running around. So we're super excited uh, for you. Um, But to your question about Medicaid, um, it is the largest payer for childbirth uh, nationwide. In 2018, it covered 43% of births in the United States. And in some states, it's even higher than that. In New Mexico, for example, Medicaid program accounted for more than 70% of the babies born in the state. Yeah. And part of that is because uh, pregnancy is a separate category of Medicaid eligibility, right? So going back to, I think it was the late 80s, states uh were required to cover all pregnant women at or below 138% of the poverty level. And since then, almost all of the states have bumped that up to uh, 200% of the federal poverty level. And some states uh, offer even more generous eligibility levels. But here's the tricky thing. Um, Because pregnancy is a category of its own, and because uh, pregnancy-related Medicaid eligibility is almost always more generous than eligibility for other adults. You have this weird situation where many women who might not otherwise be eligible for Medicaid gain coverage during their pregnancies and then lose it when their uh, eligibility expires. Yeah. And when does that happen? When does it expire? It ends 60 days after delivery, which means that historically there have been an, uh, quite a few new mothers with eight-week-old infants um, who suddenly also have to figure out how to maintain coverage uh, for their families. And so in a minute, I want to talk about some of the recent changes to those coverage levels. But maybe before we do, Jess, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what we know about the role of coverage for this population and why we treat it differently. I guess the intent of pregnancy-related Medicaid was to cover the health services related to having a baby. And so, you know, prenatal care and care during delivery and for a short period postpartum. But as we know, it's sort of health is very interrelated. So um, so it's kind of tricky to carve out what's pregnancy-related and what's, you know, general health-related when a person's pregnant. And um, honestly, the 60-day cutoff has always baffled me, considering especially that 
when you have a baby, a lot of times you aren't told to see the healthcare provider again until six to eight weeks after giving birth. So if a health problem is identified at that time or if it comes up later, which is not uncommon, the new parent may not have health insurance coverage for follow-up visits after that first one. Um, so as you alluded to in states that didn't expand Medicaid, did you allude to that? I can't remember. <laughs> I, I didn't. And this obviously discourages people from seeking care when they need it, and it can lead to poor health outcomes. As the Kaiser Family Foundation notes, postpartum care is really essential because it addresses recovery from childbirth, any lingering pregnancy complications, but also managing chronic conditions, deciding on family planning and getting coverage for that, and mental health concerns, which are a major concern during and after pregnancy with one in 10 women experiencing perinatal depression. Uh, yeah, I know, Jess, when uh, my wife and I had our daughter, I know even though um, everyone was really, you know, relatively healthy, we were still on the phone with the doctor pretty regularly. And a lot of questions came up and we were able to address some small things pretty early to avoid uh, they're turning into big things. And so I can see why um, the access to care in those first uh, weeks and, and beyond is so important. Exactly. Um, the Kaiser Family Foundation also found that at least a third of maternal deaths occur in the postpartum period. So, you know, again, just so many reasons why losing healthcare coverage could be devastating. And we know that this particularly devastating for Black mothers and other people of color, um, and only exacerbates the racial disparities we see in maternal deaths and maternal health outcomes. Actually, a recent report from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights came out last week, found that rates of Black maternal mortality in the U.S. have only been increasing since the 1990s. Well, so I think as more people have sort of recognized those disparities, they've really zeroed in on expanding access to coverage as a tool to hopefully improve health and close those disparities. And we saw that in the Affordable Care Act, um, which provided new coverage options um, starting in 2014 for adults with low incomes, um, and that included uh, Medicaid expansion. Uh, for adults uh, with incomes up to 138% uh, of the federal poverty level. And what that meant was that um, in those uh, expansion states, you had a smaller drop-off or discrepancy between pregnancy coverage levels and the other categories, which in theory should have reduced the number of people being exposed to this sort of churn where people end up going on and off and being covered and uh, uninsured before and after pregnancy. And Jess, I know you edited a paper on this by Emily Johnston and colleagues from the Urban Institute that Health Affairs published this spring. That's right. Johnston and colleagues found that even after the ACA, more than a third of women who had prenatal Medicaid were uninsured before or after pregnancy. And uh, among that, about 22% became uninsured two to six months after giving birth. So not surprisingly, the rates were highest among birthing people in states that didn't expand Medicaid. But even in states that did expand, 10% um, of mothers became uninsured during the postpartum period. So some progress on this churn, as you mentioned, but um, clearly still an issue. And the paper makes the point that we sort of need to do more to ensure kind of kind of a continuity of insurance for um, for this population. Right. So the latest effort at uh, continuity, um, I guess, comes out of the Families First 
Coronavirus Response Act, uh, which uh, folks may recall was enacted in the spring of 2020. This was one of the big emergency relief bills at the height of the the COVID pandemic. And uh, that legislation included a provision which said to states, basically, we'll give you additional federal matching funds if you promise not to kick anyone off of Medicaid during the public health emergency. Uh, And this kind of provision is often referred to as continuous enrollment. And it has meant that states have stopped kicking women off of Medicaid 60 days postpartum during the public health emergency. That's the good news. The bad news um, is that the requirement, this continuous enrollment, will expire when the public health emergency expires. And we don't know exactly when that's going to be. Folks sort of expect it not to happen until at least early next year at the soonest. Uh, But at that point, states will begin processing um, renewals, redeterminations, and we could see a lot of people losing coverage at that point. Yeah, it's it's a scary prospect, but um, but there are some other options on the table. So Emily Johnston, whose research we were just talking about, has a new health affairs blog out with co-author Jennifer Haley, and they talk about opportunities for states to minimize the postpartum coverage loss when the public health emergency ends. So they offer several suggestions for states, including, of course, expanding Medicaid in states that haven't already expanded it. Sounds kind of like a broken record. A lot of Mm -hmm. um, papers, you know, keep hammering that Mm -hmm. in. But um, that, of course, is one policy option. Um, Another policy option is an option in the American Rescue Plan Act, a different important piece of legislation, which gives states the chance to extend postpartum Medicaid coverage from 60 days to 12 months starting in April of next year. So the authors note that many states are considering this option or have adopted a similar expansion through Medicaid waivers. Um, And another tip they have is to establish a better link between Medicaid and marketplace plans, since um, some some women, when they lose their pregnancy, Medicaid may qualify for subsidized marketplace coverage. So all interesting recommendations. Folks should definitely check it out for more details on Health Affairs blog. Um, I do, as we get close to wrapping up here, uh, just want to mention that it's not just all about coverage, um, as, as a lot of people have been uh, at pains to point out. Coverage is essential, but um, not sufficient, and um, certainly need better care um, and better funding for that care um, if we want to improve maternal health. And one of the key programs that's advancing those goals is the Maternal Infant and Early Childhood Home Visiting Program, which was actually created by uh, the Affordable Care Act and has since been reauthorized. And actually just last week, HHS announced um, a significant additional boost in um, funding for those that program, which basically sends home visiting services to families, does things like increasing access to doulas, improving data reporting on maternal mortality. We actually published a brief on this program a couple of years ago, which looked at the evidence of these home visiting programs and showed that um, there's quite a bit of variation, but in the ones that are really high quality, you see positive impacts uh, in terms of reducing preterm and low birth weight babies, more children adequately immunized, uh, completing well well child visits, um, and achieving developmental milestones. So um, a lot of potential there, um, and the additional funding 
will uh, hopefully expand access to those programs for more families. I also wanted to point out, um, I learned recently that many of the provisions in the Momnibus bill that I mentioned at the top of the episode, uh, which comes from the Black Maternal Health Caucus, have been included in um, the Energy and Commerce Committee's markup of the Build Back Better Act. So that's the big legislation moving through Congress now um, that has funding for a lot of social supports. Um, but yeah, so if if those provisions are included, it would have um, $275 million to grow and diversify the perinatal health workforce in addition to some other funding. Um, so we'll keep an eye on that. And listeners should also keep an eye out for our upcoming issue of Health Affairs in October, which features new research on perinatal mental health, including some papers related to health equity. Um, so that's going to be an important issue to check out. And on that note, I think we'll wrap up. Thanks so much for chatting, Rob. Yeah, great to talk to you, Jess, uh, about this really important topic. I hope folks enjoy. They should definitely uh, leave a review or recommend uh, to their friends. And of course, tune in next week.